You're listening to Journal Entries, a podcast about philosophy and cognitive science, where researchers open up about the articles they publish. I'm Wesley Buckwalter. In this episode, lead author Andrew Peterson talks about his paper, Alive Inside, published in the journal Bioethics. Andrew is an assistant professor of philosophy and a fellow in the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy at George Mason University, a Greenwald Scholar, and an affiliate researcher at the University of Pennsylvania Memory Center, known for his work on the ethical issues related to neurology and human consciousness. As we learn more and more about the brain, researchers are developing amazing neuroscientific methods that can help diagnose patients with traumatic brain injuries. But as these technologies develop, they also raise a number of important ethical questions, which are the topic of Andrew's paper. Imagine that your loved one is in a car accident. Heaven forbid, right? And your loved one is rushed to the hospital. Your loved one is not responsive at the scene of the accident and not responsive when they get to the hospital, get to the hospital uh, despite all the best efforts of the critical care neurologist that's there, the neurocriticalist that's there. And and remains unresponsive, right? So uh, when you when you say your loved one's name, unresponsive. When you when you when you ask the loved one to raise her arm to command, she's unresponsive, right? So just appears to be comatose, un, unarousably unaware, right? The, there there's some pretty critical decisions that need to be made in that early period of time, right? Do we want to continue? with treatment or is it the case that you want to withdraw care that that sort of awful decision and families are often stuck there and they're forced to make decisions that are really difficult with a paucity of of information and clinicians are equally stuck because they want to give as much information as possible to families to be able to you know make the best decisions for for their loved one but but it's hard to predict whether patients are going to recover after a severe brain injury. So that's the world that we live in, right? But now imagine a world where you could use a sophisticated neuroimaging scanner, right? You could s- slide your loved one into a scanner and determine early in the recovery process, like while that individual is still in uh, the neurocritical care unit, whether that patient will recover for one and what that kind of recovery will look like. Right? And it turns out that that's the world that we're soon going to be living in. Clinicians in this area have always been sensitive to the ethical issues because they're dealing with them sort of on the front line, right? Sort of these life or death issues. But I think that people are in this area are becoming more sensitive to concerns about prognostication and the use of, of new imaging technologies to, to improve prognostication. You may wonder why like a philosopher all of a sudden got interested in in thinking about brain injury and it's it's kind of serendipitous. Uh, so I did my PhD at the University of Western Ontario. Um, I was supervised by both a research ethicist but also a neuroscientist and and it, it it just so happened that the neuroscientist that I was working with was looking at issues of brain injury and the recovery of consciousness following brain injury and using really sophisticated um, neuroimaging techniques to determine whether patients who had severe brain injury were going to recover from one or had preserved consciousness that was undetectable at the bedside. And it was actually like a, a really great sort of meeting of the minds, so to speak. 
sometimes when you when you interact with scientists, they're very skeptical of having philosophers in the room, particularly philosophers that are interested in in research ethics or in bioethics. But these neuroscientists, um, this lab was very receptive to participating and collaborating with philosophers because they realized that the the questions that they're struggling with in their lab were were deep philosophical questions and had really profound philosophical implications. Um, so that's sort of you know the, the genesis of the relationship that um, that came to a paper like this. And there's there's a variety of papers and a variety of 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 teammates that I've had in thinking through these issues. So I want you know to make sure that I acknowledge that this is um, this is a paper that 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 this sort of is is one stepping stone in, in that collaboration. The paper though itself really was a reaction to a policy change that occurred in medicine in 2018. So various societies in the United States, medical societies, got together and produced a new clinical guideline called the Practice Guideline Update on Disorders of Consciousness. And these practice guidelines come out often, right? So it's just uh, it's the growing pains of medicine, right? It's we, we do research, we figure out that there's better ways to treat patients, and then that kind of research goes through the pipeline to clinical practice and becomes standard of care. And the way that it becomes sort of standard of care is, is a political process here. You can see that it actually becomes standard of care when it's integrated through this, this practice guideline update. And this is, this is not to say that it's like a purely political process. It's, it's really predominantly an evidence-based process because there's a whole sort of uh, there's a lot of background work that goes into determining whether these new investigational techniques work in patients and then uh, how they ought to be brought to the bedside. But this is what really motivated the paper, right? And in the practice guideline update, there are various recommendations to use neuroimaging to assess patients with disorders of consciousness. And the, the particular applications of neuroimaging that are outlined in the practice guideline update are kind of revolutionary. It's actually asking physicians in particular cases to use neuroimaging to detect something called covert consciousness. And that's really revolutionary in the practice of, of neurology for assessing patients with severe brain injury. So the technique that was developed at the, the lab up at the University of Western Ontario, Adrian Owen's lab, the technique that everybody always refers to is called the mental imagery paradigm. So the way that this technique works is that you slide anybody into a scanner and you ask them to imagine one of two activities, playing tennis or imagine moving from room to room in your home. And it turns out that imagining these two activities preferentially activates different areas of the brain. Imagining playing tennis activates the supplementary motor area, whereas imagine, uh, imagining moving from room to room in your home activates a network of brain areas that's associated with spatial navigation. So the posterior parietal cortex, the perihippocampal place area, and the premotor cortex. And these are spatially distinct brain areas, right? And so you, you ask a patient or any participant to imagine one of these activities for discrete and repeated 30 second intervals. So you're in the scanner right now. I ask you, imagine playing tennis and don't, uh, and, and continue to imagine playing tennis until I tell you to rest, right? Or imagine moving from room to room in one's home 
all the different layout of the room, where the furniture is, what the walls look like, so forth and so on, and keep doing that until you I, I tell you to rest. And what what uh, researchers can do, what clinicians can do, if used in, in the clinic, is that you can decode from the neuroimaging data itself whether the patient is volitionally modulating their brain to activity. So the reason why this is important, important is that it, it turns out that some patients with brain injury are able to do this, even though they're not able to raise their arm to command. So the way that we would normally figure out whether a patient is aware after a severe brain injury is whether they can volitionally follow commands. Well, it turns out there's this new way of with neuroimaging, sort of peer into the black box of, of the brains of these patients to determine whether just through imagining these, these movements, these activities, whether they're responding to commands. And there's been a variety of studies that have used this technique. And it's on the order of about 15 to 20% of patients who appear entirely unresponsive at the bedside, diagnosed as being in the vegetative state, a state of wakefulness without awareness, right? That those patients are actually covertly aware. We sometimes use the term covertly conscious. That's that's a pretty large amount of patients that who we thought were completely unconscious. They're actually conscious, but they're just sort of trapped inside their bodies. The thing that's kind of remarkable about this technique too is that various labs have taken this technique and have used it to communicate with patients. So the way that you can communicate with this, this technique is to code the imagine activities with the answers yes or no. So you instruct a participant to, um, to imagine playing tennis if she wants to answer yes to a question or uh, imagine moving from room to room in your home if you want to answer no. And it turns out a variety of patients have who we thought were in a vegetative state we're actually able to, to communicate with this technique and answer fairly sophisticated questions. So, uh, you know, we had been thinking, my co-authors and I had been thinking about this issue for quite some time because the, this is the, the neuroscience lab that I was in was developing these techniques themselves. So we thought that this was a, a perfect time to sort of revisit some of the key ethical issues that people have struggled with. Are the use of these neuroimaging techniques gonna uh, facilitate false hope? among caregivers? What about the quality of life of these patients? Is it actually going to perpetuate harm? Or is there any benefit uh, to using that, these techniques for these patients? And finally, like, is, is, is it worth the cost, right? It's really expensive to use these, these techniques. So we use this as an opportunity to really sort of uh, revisit those questions in a way that sort of tackled that, you know, the, the, the policy change that's happened just recently, but to, to use it as a way to sort of to, to think more deeply about um, the ethical considerations that come from this policy change. This was one of those things where, um, where when I was a graduate student working on this, I have sort of naive view that if you detect covert consciousness in these patients, it's like, we've, we've done it. Like, you know, that's the goal, right? But when you disclose that kind of information to patients' families, it's kind of the, the kind of response that they've, they gave was, so what do we do now? And it turns out that there's not a lot that you can do, at least for chronic patients. Patients that, when I say chronic patients, I mean patients that, that are, are year, year out after their injury. 
or more. And some of the patients that we assessed, they were five to 10 years they had been in a vegetative state. So, so you know, clearly families are very committed to these patients. They want to make sure that they uh, that they stand by them. But yeah, I mean, this kind of response that you get from them is so, okay, like, so what's the next step? What's the kind of therapy you've detected that is covert consciousness, consciousness now? Do something about it. Bring my loved one back to me. That's what people really want. But that does shed light on the the really interesting application of these techniques, not in chronic patients, but in what we would call acutely comatose patients. The acute population is where there's real promise for this technology. And those are patients that are within 72 hours or a week of their brain injury. So they're really, really sick patients. They're typically patients that appear comatose at the bedside. They're in the ICU. And those are when some of the real critical decisions are made about, about continuation of, of, of treatment or withdrawal of treatment. And again, as, as I started off this conversation, families are sort of stuck and clinicians are stuck with, with a paucity of information and uncertain information at those, those junctures. And if there's any decision that we would ever want the most certainty with, it's like, the decision whether they'll live or die. Like we want to have like as much certainty as possible. So it turns out that you can use these techniques though, not merely just to determine whether a patient is covertly conscious, but you can use them for improvement of, of prognostication to give better prognostic accuracy for patients with severe brain injury. Are these patients going to recover, right? And what is that recovery going to look like? And the, the, the handful of labs that are seriously working on this in the United States and throughout the world are really focusing their energy on that now. And it turns out that that's, that from a policy standpoint too, that's, it's, a, it's a good place to focus your energy because if you can make those serious, you know, these critical decisions early on, then it can affirm to you that your investment of time and money and caring for these patients down the road is actually worth it, or worth it for the reasons that the that that caregivers and patients specify, right? Um, because there's a variety of reasons as to why um, caregivers might want to continue care, but at least they have that information at hand so that they can actually make informed decisions, as opposed to like going through life caring for their loved one and always being uncertain whether they're ever going to recover or whether they're conscious, whether they can hear their voice, whether they can feel the, the sort of touch of their hand when they visit them in the hospital. One really serious worry that's come up with this kind of work is how family caregivers understand neuroimaging results when they're disclosed to them. So, so one, the possibility of even offering neuroimaging as, as, as a way to assess patients to determine whether they may be covertly conscious, but then additionally, how you disclose that information to them. So it's not one to, to either raise something called therapeutic misconception, which is the idea that like what's going on in the investigational space, the research space is actually going to confer any kind of therapeutic benefit to the patient, right? We don't know if this really works yet. We want to make sure that it really works in the research setting before we can, the clinicians can make claims about it actually conferring like improving diagnostic accuracy or, or prognostic accuracy. So that's one concern. But then the other concern is just generally raising false hopes, right? 
So you get some some neuroimaging information back. The information is it, it may be you know may be indicative of a patient having preserved cognition, or it may be sort of marginal. In any case, you can imagine that a a family who's perhaps distraught you know, is, is, is trying to process all this information, they may sort of latch on to that and, and sort of develop false hopes about the, the possibility of recovery. Now, it turns out, though, that these, these kinds of concerns, serious ethical concerns about therapies and misconception and, and false hope are, are rather speculative. Bioethicists have worried that disclosing the inf- this kind of information to patients' families will cause false hope or cause therapeutic misconception or lead to it, but it's never been tested empirically. Until recently, um, we just finished up uh, a, a qualitative interview study of caregivers of patients with disorders of consciousness who went through the neuroimaging um, research program at the University of Western Ontario, the one that I just described, and they went through a gamut of neuroimaging techniques. And what we wanted to assess with this, we did we did a, a an interview with these patient these these caregivers before the patient underwent the neuroimaging tasks, and then an interview after they received the neuroimaging results. And what we wanted to assess was whether they actually understood the results and whether that led to uh, to false hope. First, it didn't lead to false hope or therapeutic misconception in the way that bioethicists think that it would. In fact, all the families that the caregivers that went through the study had a very, very sophisticated understanding of the study itself and the results, irrespective of the kinds of results that they received, whether it was null results or uh, results that were consistent with covert consciousness. However, the folks that did receive evidence of covert consciousness, so my intuition was like, oh, you're going to receive evidence of covert consciousness, this is going to be a great thing, right? This is going to be sort of life-changing for you. Turns out it wasn't. Getting evidence of covert consciousness is really complicated to process. And it's really complicated to share with other family members who are once removed from that disclosure process. So for instance, a lot of family caregivers sort of who received evidence of covert consciousness sort of latched on to certain terms that the research team used when they were disclosing the evidence, uh, the results, such as brain activity or brain activation. And they became sort of bewitched by these particular terms and all the other sort of pertinent scientific or clinical facts sort of faded to the background. And when they shared that information with, with, other caregivers with other people in the caregiving network, but who were once removed from the disclosure process, you got this sort of telephone effect. So they would disc- they would share that information with with the other family members, and then the other family members would think to themselves, "Oh my gosh, like that must mean that that John is waking up tomorrow," or "Oh my gosh, that means that Jane is waking up tomorrow." So it's important to note that the people who actually had the information disclosed to them, who were counseled by the research team themselves, they understood they didn't show any evidence of false hope. They didn't understand uh, show any evidence of therapeutic misconception. But but it you know it it takes a village in these cases to to care for a patient, and sharing that kind of information with other individuals did lead to this to to this complexity in the way that people understand this notion of covert consciousness. I think the other thing that was really interesting in that scenario, to in this study too, is that when we disclose null results to some caregivers, and null results meaning that there's this, there was no, um, 
there was no neuroimaging evidence of an effect, right? We, in these kind of scenarios, we're not able to say that the patient is actually unconscious. The patient may have fallen asleep during the neuroimaging task. Patient may have auditory impairments secondary to brain injury that um, it, it, that that uh, make it impossible for them to actually go through with the, the neuroimaging task. Right, so so those the, there are various confounds that may bear on a patient's capacity to to perform the task. So we always go into the disclosure process, um, framing it as uninformative results if the uh, if if there's no indication of covert consciousness. But some patient, uh, caregivers who receive that information are actually resistant to um, to the information, and instead of being accepting of the information they turned around and they started challenging the validity of the neuroimaging tests themselves, claiming, for instance, well, it's just research, right? Or I'm surprised that you guys didn't do X, Y, and Z because I do those kinds of sensory stimulation techniques at home, and those turn out to be much more sensitive, and I actually see a significant amount of reaction from the patient at home. So there's a really interesting nuance here to the psychology of, of um uh, of hearing information that sort of conflicts with your worldview about a patient, right? Um, and this is, you know, this is, uh, again, we went into the study just to determine whether there was an issue of false hope or therapeutic misconception. Um, what we found with the study, though, is that during this disclosure process, the story is so much more complex and really turns on how the sort of psychology of caregivers, how they understand terms like consciousness, what their goals of care are, um, what their sort of deep-seated views are about the patient to begin with, which are sort of, you know, they're all couched in like this long relationship that they've had with the patient up until the brain injury and after brain injury as they've been caring for them. There's a really interesting sort of ethical issue that's embedded in what kind of evidence we think is sufficient to ascribe consciousness to these patients. There are a lot of people who think that the evidence is insufficient to ascribe consciousness to these patients, but it seems to me that there's a lot at stake. If we you know, don't ascribe consciousness to the patient, but they are conscious, right? We have a false negative. That might imply that we would prematurely pull the plug on some of these patients or treat them in a way that isn't commensurate with them actually being conscious, right? Whether it's you know through the application of pain medications or something like that. But on the other hand, there's there's there you know if you set the if you set the evidentiary standard like lower, right? Um, you might get a lot of false positives in that case, and in that case, you're going to have a lot of patients who who aren't conscious at all, but we're detecting with neuroimaging, you know, that they they are um, they may be conscious, right? And then you might prolong the lives of these patients and impact their dignity when, you know, family family members or in expressing their advance directed that they actually would want care to be withdrawn. You may ra raise false hopes in these in these individuals. You may actually uh, it may also lead to like serious cost considerations too because it's very very expensive to care for one of these patients for years. I started off this story by talking about the, the practice guideline update and how revolutionary the practice guideline update is, but there, there are some philosophical puzzles that remain about the practice guideline update. They're really important for, for philosophers, for, for, for bioethicists, for health policy experts to weigh in on, and they also illuminate some really interesting questions about how 
evidence-based recommendations sort of meet the road of clinical practice. So this, as I mentioned, this practice guideline is incredibly rigorous. All the recommendations are evidence-based, and they went the, the folks who put it together went through an exceptionally rigorous process to determine what the evidence base is for a particular recommendation, how strong that evidence base is, so forth and so on. But for some of the recommendations that don't have as strong of, of, evi of an evidence base, there are particular caveats in the recommendation that instruct individual, individual physicians to weigh the harms and benefits of applying this recommendation in practice, neuroimaging, for instance, or multidisciplinary neurorehabilitation, for instance. Those are some of the recommendations. It asks individual physicians to weigh the harms and benefits of that recommendation, the feasibility of applying that recommendation in practice for a particular patient, and the potential costs relative to benefit for a particular patient. And throughout the recommendations, there, there's no description as to how individual physicians ought to sort of grapple with those concepts. It's, it's not actually fleshed out in the document itself. So when an individual physician in the Midwest like, has a, a brain injury patient that's just gone in a car accident and is very keen to, to sort of follow the evidence-based recommendations to the T, but then they get to this these caveats about how to sort of weigh benefits and risks. Like, how's how's that individual physician physician supposed to do that? How much does it cost? What's that? Like, how much does it cost? Right, it's. A, I think it's probably going to vary. Um, so I think the, I think that the bigger issue is this sort of auxiliary costs that are associated with it is making sure that you actually have a neuroimaging unit that's like that at the particular hospital in the Midwest and weighing weighing the amount of time that it takes to do one of those communication sessions versus the use of the neuroimaging unit to assess other patients that may also need, right? So there's these sort of trade-offs that are, are done. I mean, and there's, there, there, are, there are serious efforts to, to, to translate these techniques into something that's cheaper and it's more portable. So, so all these techniques have been developed with fMRI, right? But they're trying to, most of them are trying to be translated into to EEG. So that's like the the, the, the real push right now. Um, but, but the concern from a policy angle is that, okay, well, we have these evidence-based recommendations now, but given these sort of normative caveats and these normative instructions within certain recommendations, there's the possibility that the evidence-based recommendations could be applied unevenly across the United States, right? Because you're going to have individual physicians making sort of ad hoc decisions as to what is beneficial to a patient, what is harmful to a patient, what is feasible to a patient, whether the costs um, outweigh the benefits uh, for a particular patient. And that's, you know, I guess from a philosopher's brain is that like when you have rules, you should follow the rules, right? It's And it seems strange to like think that there's flexibility to the rules. But on the other hand, when you think about it from a medical standpoint, I mean, this is really where the sort of you get to the gray area that, that sort of edges the margins of evidence-based medicine. And you start to see that medicine is just as much of an art as it is an evidence-based practice. This, this is a fascinating feature, thinking through the problem of how to apply these practice guidelines in practice in a consistent way. It's a, it's a fascinating exercise to think about how recommendations in medicine get to the point where the rubber meets the road and how to do that in a way that 
preserves maximum flexibility for individual physicians that are struggling with, you know, patients that are going to come with all sorts of different perhaps comorbidities or, or, or all sorts of different patient histories, but then also trying to apply these sort of generalizable rules about how to care for these patients to, to individual patients. I mean, in some senses, it's, it seems to sort of map onto the same concerns that we have in, in philosophy about having sort of generalized uh, moral principles, but then also being able to take those generalized moral principles and apply them to particular cases. But I think more generally, if, if you sort of start abstract a little bit and you think about the relationship between sort of philosophy and neuroscience and ethics, I think that there's p- people are starting to appreciate that there's a, a, a great synergy between all of them. And I, you know, you see this through through initiatives like the neuroethics arm of the Brain Initiative, for instance, Brain Initiative developed by the um, the Obama administration which is intended to to unlock the mysteries of the human brain and and various pathologies of the human brain but then i think that the NIH is 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 very sensitive to the ethical issues that come up because the sort of the brain is is one of those critical organs that makes us us and i think that there's there's recognition that that philosophers who have been tackling these kinds of questions about the sort of intrinsic properties of being human could that that philosophers can bring fantastic insights to the scientific process here about how how guiding the science of what questions are important to us but then moreover it's sort of how that information can be used to to enhance human flourishing generally that's it for today's episode Funding in part was provided by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy at George Mason University. Visit our website at journalentries.fireside.fm for more information about Andrew Peterson, his work, and some of the resources mentioned in this episode.